I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 for our time of study in the Word uh, this morning. Uh, for those of you that um, uh, may be new to Cornerstone, every four or five years we uh, run a circuit through the different uh, portions of the Christmas narrative that we find in the Gospel accounts. And this year we come back to uh, the narrative in Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11, and uh, this is regarding the visit of the Magi to, uh, to Jesus. And uh, I want us to look at verses 1 through 11. I think on your notes and on the email yesterday, it said 1 through 12. I hate to disappoint you. It's going to be 1 through 11. So we'll give an 8% refund to any of you that are uh, disappointed or dissatisfied with that. But uh, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 11, and the title of the message this morning is Seeking and Finding the Precious Lord. Seeking and Finding the Precious Lord. I'm sure many of you heard the news of a string of tornadoes that ripped through uh, Tennessee a couple of weeks ago, doing a stunning amount of damage in a very short period of time and leaving many, many people without power among the stories I read was one out of Clarksville, Tennessee, about a baby in a bassinet. To the horror of the baby's parents, the tip of a tornado touched the top of their mobile home and ripped off the roof and sucked the baby out of the mobile home, the baby that was lying in the bassinet. The boy's father had lunged for the bassinet to try to hold it down. But the tornado sucked both of them out of the mobile home and had them flying around in circles in the vortex of the tornado until it tore them apart and carried the baby away. Shortly after that moment, the mother dove on top of her other child just in time to protect him before the walls of their mobile home collapsed on top of them. The mom and the dad were able to crawl out from under the wreckage, and their only thought at that point was to find their four-month-old baby who had been carried away by the tornado. They were sure the child had not survived the violence of the tornado, but they searched anyway. And amazingly, after a frantic search in the pouring rain, they were delighted to find the baby gently cradled in the branches of a fallen tree, completely uninjured except for a scratch on his face. So as you can imagine, that was the sweetest discovery of their lives. As I read the story, I was intrigued to learn the name of this baby. I've never heard of anyone with this first name before. The baby's name is Lord, L-O-R-D. In fact, the news outlet whose story I read wrote about how the parents found the baby and they said this, lying there in the pouring rain was baby Lord. And I knew I had my opening illustration for this sermon today. <laughs> the mother said, I was pretty sure we weren't going to find him, but he is here and that is by the grace of God. That's a really cool story with a happy outcome 
of a desperate search that lasted all of 10 minutes over the space of 100 yards. But I have a better story for all of you uh, this morning about a group of men who travel 900 miles over the span of a few months on a desperate quest to find a child. And they actually do find him. Early in the story, as we're going to see in verse 2, these men are asking, where is he? And by the end of the story, the text says in verse 11, they saw the child. And the child they find is their Lord and your Lord. He is Christ Jesus, the Lord. Who are these men who find him? Well, they are the Magi. And today we're going to ponder their search and what they did once they found the Lord that they were searching for and what their search even means for us today. First of all, I think some quick facts about the Magi would be helpful for us in appreciating this story that we find in Matthew chapter 2. For starters, the Magi uh, were magicians in the sense of being exceptionally wise men, knowledgeable in religion and science and in history and in math. These guys were smart, and they were also premier astronomers as well. They operated off the premise that the heavens have something to tell us about God and about even what is happening on earth. So they kept a keen eye upon the heavens looking for signs in the stars. Based on what we know of the Magi from history, we know that these men were extremely powerful men also. These men were not kings, but you could call them king makers. It was the Magi who tutored the sons of kings, preparing them for the day in which they themselves would become kings and rulers. In Persia, no man could become a king without the approval of the Magi. In Babylon and Persia, when someone would become king, they would have a cabinet of advisors, and the sitting members of that cabinet were the Magi. As for the Magi in our passage today, we know that they knew something of the coming messianic king of Israel. They are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures enough to know that the king of the Jews is coming and that a light in the heavens will herald his arrival. They know enough to know that this Messiah is someone who is worthy of worship, not just from Jews, but even from non-Jews, and they are serious enough about their faith to make a long journey to Israel in search of this one. And as we work our way through our passage today, I, I want us to observe seven developments in the story of the Magi's journey to Israel in search of the Christ child. Perhaps God has touched your heart and he's caused you to begin seeking Christ. Perhaps you already know Jesus, but you are ever seeking to know him and experience his goodness more. Either way, I think you're going to be encouraged and you're going to find help for yourself in this story of the Magi, both seeking and finding their precious Lord. 
So if you've got a hard copy of the notes, um, you can follow along uh, with those notes. Seven developments in the story of the Magi seeking and finding the Christ child. Number one, first development, they arrive in Jerusalem asking where he is. They arrive in Jerusalem asking where he is. Observe what the text says in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now Matthew has told us in chapter 1 uh, the story of Christ's birth. Um, and so he has already declared that and explained that. But then he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. If these men are coming from Babylon or from Persia, and they followed the curve of what we know of as the fertile crescent in their travels, then their journey would have been about 900 miles And this would have taken about four months or so for them to be able to cover that kind of distance with their mode of transportation in this day. In fact, if you were to read the book of Ezra, you would find that Ezra made this exact journey in four months, the writer says, because the good hand of his God was upon him. So that's good time in the mind of the writer of the book of Ezra. So let's assume a four-month journey of the Magi to Jerusalem here. That would mean approximately eight months round trip of these men being away from their homes and away from their society and away from their comfort zones. Imagine something being so valuable and so important to you that you would leave everything for eight months to go in search of whatever that is. Look at the text again. According to verses 1 and 2, these magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The tense of the verb saying is present tense, meaning that The Magi did not just ask this question once, but they were going around and repeatedly asking people this question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This means that they would have asked one person and that person would have said, I don't know. And then they would have gone to someone else and asked that other person and they would have said, I don't know. And on and on they went going around from person to person asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And they keep asking this question, obviously, because they're not getting an answer to their question. But evidently, they persist and refuse to let themselves be discouraged in their search for Jesus, which means that these men are not typical men who give up searching for things too quickly. Can I get an amen? The average man nowadays opens a drawer looking for something. And if the item he's looking for is not sitting on top of everything else and saying, here I am, he will close the drawer and say to his wife, it's not in there. And what does the wife do? You guys know 
how this goes. She goes to the drawer and she opens the drawer and with some sort of witchcraft that I will never (laughs) for the life of me understand, the item appears in the drawer. My wife and I have acted out this scenario many, many times throughout our years of marriage. I don't like looking for things. Many of us do not like looking for things. And it's easy to be discouraged after an attempt or two. But the Magi were not like that in their search for the Christ child. They don't give up. They keep asking around. They're persistent and they keep on looking and asking. They are not going to be returning to Babylon or to Persia without having found this one whom they are seeking. And the reason they were so persistent is because they believed. If you want to know the secret of their persistence, it's because these men were men of faith. In fact, notice that they're not asking people if the king of the Jews has been born. They are saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They may not know where he is, but they talk like they are absolutely confident that this king of the Jews has, in fact, been born. And that ought to make sense to us as we read this narrative. You don't travel 900 miles back in this day to find out if a king of the Jews has been born. You travel this distance and you persist only because you are certain that he has been born, and you're simply wanting to find out where he is. Well, how is it that these magi are so confident that the king of the Jews has been born? Well, this brings us to the second development in this story of the magi seeking and finding the Christ child. Number two, they tell about the star which convinced them that he has been born. They tell people about the star which convinced them that he has been born. Notice what they say in verse 1. They say, we saw his star in the east, which is where they're from. Now, as for what this star is that they would have seen when they were in the east, there's different suggestions that people have offered down through the centuries Some say that what the Magi saw was an alignment of planets of some sort that would have created an unusually bright formation in the sky. Some suggest that it might have been a comet racing through the heavens. The Greek word for star here uh, simply speaks of a bright light in the heavens. So this word is broad enough to include these kinds of possibilities. Whatever the star is, though, it must have had the ability to disappear and reappear or to appear, disappear and reappear. And it must have had the ability to move ahead of the Magi and then stop over the very house where Jesus was, which is what we're going to see the star doing in verse 9. That's kind of hard for an alignment of planets to do, right? Or a comet. 
So at the very least, whatever the star was, it must have included some kind of supernatural light in the heavens that was actually able to move and direct the Magi to the very house where Jesus was. My personal guess regarding the star is informed by linking the prophecy of Isaiah 60 with Luke chapter 2. In Isaiah 60, uh, Isaiah speaks of a future day for Israel when it can be said to Israel that, listen to this in Isaiah 60 verse 1 through 3, your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light. That's Isaiah 60. And then according to Luke 2, on the night of Christ's birth, an angel appears to the shepherds in Bethlehem. And we're told in Luke chapter 2, verse 9, that the glory of the Lord shone around them, making them very afraid. So we know that the glory of the Lord shined in the night sky on the evening of Christ's birth, according to Luke 2. We're then told in Luke 2, verses 13 and 14, that suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. My suspicion is that what the shepherds saw in Luke 2, close up over Bethlehem on the night of Christ's birth, God opened the eyes of the Magi to see that very thing from a distance, 900 miles away. And when they saw it, they knew that it meant that Christ had been born. In other words, the star that the Magi saw while they were in the east may very well have been the glory of God in the night sky over Bethlehem that the shepherds saw in Luke chapter 2. Perhaps also the Magi are familiar with Numbers 24.17. Numbers 24.17, where it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. One from Jacob shall have dominion. This verse here in Numbers is not promising that there will be a star in the heavens at the Messiah's birth. It's actually telling us that the Messiah himself will be that star of Jacob that will arise. But perhaps the Magi see the light in the heavens and perhaps they put that together with Numbers 24, 17. And they conclude that this means the Messiah has been born and they're convinced enough somehow to decide to pack up and leave and head off to Jerusalem in order to search for this one whom they now know has been born the king of the Jews. And now here they are in Jerusalem asking around for his whereabouts. And when people ask them, how do they know that the king of the Jews has been born? They say, well, we saw his star in the east. But that's not all that they do and say. This brings us to the third development in this story of the Magi seeking and finding the Christ child. Number three, they declare their worshipful 
purpose for wanting to find him. They declare their worshipful purpose for wanting to find the Christ child. Observe their words at the end of verse 2, where they say, We saw his star in the east and have come to do what? To worship him. The Magi are very purposeful in their quest to find Jesus. They want to know where he is so that they can worship him as God. This is not only their intention, but they're very public about their intention here. They don't mind the whole world knowing that they have come to Jerusalem in search of this one so that they can offer their full worship to this one who has been born the king of the Jews. Where is he, they say? We have traveled all this distance so that we can find him and worship him as God is essentially what they're saying. These men obviously don't worship the stars or some king back in Babylon or Persia. They want to give their worship to one person only, and that is to this one who has been born the king of the Jews, the one who is our Lord and Savior. They're not even coming into Jerusalem to decide whether or not they might want to worship this one and whether or not he might be worthy of their worship. Now, it seems like they've already decided on that. And they are here to find Jesus so that they can worship him as God. If God were to ask them, what is the one thing you most desire in your life Their answer would be to see the Messiah and to worship him. That is gift enough for us. It's the only reason we've come all this way to find this one. Well, when you search for Christ the way these magi are doing and you're so public about it and you speak the truth about him and you call him the king of the Jews the way that these magi do, you're bound to create some trouble. And that's exactly what happens as this story unfolds. And this brings us to the fourth development in this story of the magi seeking and finding the Christ child. Number four, they unwittingly stir up trouble in their search for him. They unwittingly stir up trouble in their search for the Christ child. Observe what the text says in verse 3. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. In other words, when he heard about these magi and, and about this one who's been born king of the Jews, who had a star announcing his birth that the magi are looking for, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled. And if you know anything about Herod, you would know exactly why he is troubled. We know from history that Herod was an extremely paranoid king, paranoid about anyone who might try to snatch his power away from him. For example, we know from history that Herod once grew suspicious of his wife's brother. So he had his wife's brother killed. At another point, thereafter, he grew suspicious of his wife's mother. So he had his wife's mother killed. And we know from history that these two murders 
had a negative impact on their marriage. (laughs) After all, studies show that when you kill your wife's brother and then her mother, it hurts the marriage. It gets even worse, guys. It wasn't long after those murders that Herod grew suspicious of this particular wife. So he killed her. And he had nine other wives, so he didn't sweat the loss of this one. History also tells us that Herod had two of his own sons killed because he grew suspicious of their intentions to replace him on the throne before he died. Five days before Herod actually died, he grew suspicious of yet another son and had that son killed. So it's safe to say that Herod is paranoid about holding on to his power for as long as he possibly can, all the way to his final breath, and he will tolerate no rivals to his rule. But here come the Magi into Jerusalem asking the worst possible question anyone could ask under Herod's rule. They're saying, where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. We have come to worship him. Herod catches wind of this, and he's troubled. By the way, we don't know how many magi there were. Ancient church tradition says that there were 12. Later church tradition says that there were three, but honestly, we don't know the number. We do know that these men were powerful. They were wealthy and no doubt brought many servants and attendants with them. They almost certainly had a security detail of soldiers with them also. So this is very likely an impressive contingent of people coming into Jerusalem, asking around for this one who has been born king of the Jews. And the text says, when Herod the king heard this, He was troubled, and then look what it says next, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why were they troubled? Well, the people in Jerusalem were troubled because they were certain that Herod would respond with brutality to any serious threat to his dynasty. It is for this reason that when Herod was troubled, everyone was troubled about the heads that would be about to roll. Even though Herod was a ruthless, heartless man, he was shrewd. Observe what he does in verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Herod gathers these religious scholars together and says, Hey, guys, I've been having my devotions And I've been thinking about the Messiah, and I'm just wondering, is there anywhere in biblical prophecy that indicates uh, where the Messiah is supposed to be born? Well, they hear his question, and they give him the answer he was looking for in verses 5 and 6. Look at the text. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet And then they quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, from the prophet Micah, 
who says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So upon getting this valuable information from the chief priest and the scribes and rulers of the people, Herod hears what they say and then dismisses them and says, thank you for fellowshipping with me about these things. And they leave his presence. And then he calls the Magi into his presence and observe what he does in verse seven. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. So you can just read that and know what he's after, right? He's asking them, when did this star appear that you saw when you were in the east? And he was able, evidently, to get specific information from them such that he could determine to his own satisfaction the exact time that this star appeared and thus know the date of the birth of this Messiah who has been born king of the Jews. Now, if you're paying close attention to what's happening here and you know how this story is going to go, you, you discover something truly astonishing here about fallen humanity. You'll notice that Herod is not questioning the fact that a star appeared. And he's not questioning the fact that the purpose of this star was to announce the birth of the long-awaited Messiah. He's assuming that this has happened, which means that he clearly believes that something supernatural has occurred. Herod believes there was a star. He believes it was the Messiah's star. He believes that the Messiah has truly been born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of a several hundred year old prophecy. He believes all of that and he wants to kill this Messiah. He wants to kill him so badly that in verse 16 of this very chapter, Herod will end up slaughtering every baby boy in Bethlehem who is two years old or younger, according to the timing of the star's appearance that he had discerned from the Magi. Sometimes we think that, man, if we could just provide enough evidence to convince people that the God of the Bible truly exists, show them evidence of the supernatural, then they will automatically believe and surrender their hearts to God and to God's son, Jesus Christ. But what Herod does here is simply one example in the Bible that shows that this is categorically not true. Herod believes in the miraculous. He has no doubt about the truth of Old Testament prophecy. He believes the Messiah has been born and he wants to eliminate him because he is a threat to his own rule. The hearts of the Magi are in a very different place, though. They don't view Jesus as any sort of threat. They're searching for Christ in order to bow before him and to worship him. And God uses Micah Chapter 5, verse 2, to help them in their search. 
And this leads us to the next development in the story of the Magi seeking and finding the Christ child. Number five, they are directed by an Old Testament prophecy to Bethlehem to find him. They are directed by an Old Testament prophecy to Bethlehem to find him. So as Herod's meeting with the Magi unfolds, he evidently shares with them what he learned from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So he tells them that the Messiah evidently has been born in Bethlehem. And then observe what happens in verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way and began heading from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Armed with this information from here, the Magi begin the final leg of their journey to Bethlehem. Hence, we can say here that the Magi received help from Scripture in their quest to find Christ. They got to Jerusalem by the star, and it was their understanding of Scripture that no doubt helped them to know how to interpret the star that they saw. But once they get to Jerusalem, it is the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that provides them the guidance that they need to get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, which is about five miles south of Jerusalem. God provides that scriptural information through, of all people, King Herod, which means that with all of his devious intentions, Herod ends up being merely a pawn in God's plan to get the Magi all the way to Bethlehem through a passage of Scripture. Which leaves us with this point that I think is worth making. If you are here this morning and you are interested in finding Christ, if you're seeking after him and you wish to find him and the truth about him, you should know that you can find him the way that the Magi did, and that is through Scripture, with the help and the guidance of Scripture. I remember a woman who once attended our church. She told me that she grew up in a Jewish household and her mom and dad hated Jesus. She heard about Jesus all her life growing up, but it was all expressions of hate from her mom and dad against Jesus. So when she came of age, she began to wonder, what is it about Jesus that would make my parents hate him so much? So she started reading the Gospel of John to see what was so awful about this Jesus. And as she read through the Gospel of John, she told me she found herself falling in love with the Christ that her parents hated, and she became a Christian. In the end, she found Christ, how? Through the Scripture, just as we all should do. So if you want to find Christ, go to the Bible Read the Bible, and the Scriptures will point you to him, just as the Scriptures told the Magi the location of where they could find Christ 2,000 years ago. 
There's yet another development in this story of the Magi seeking and finding Christ. Let's word it this way. Number six, they rejoice in the reappearance of the star that directs them to him. So they've come from the east. They made it to Jerusalem. Then they made it from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. But where is Jesus to be found? The star is going to point that out to them. And number six, they rejoice in the reappearance of the star that directs them to him. The fact that the star is going to reappear here tells us that the star was not in the sky the whole time of their journey. It had appeared on the day of his birth, but then had disappeared at some point. But look at what happens in verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way. So they're heading to Bethlehem. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Imagine what these men are feeling. As they begin their journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, the star reappears, and the text tells us it went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So we're reminded here that whatever this star was, it had the ability to appear, disappear, and reappear, and it had the ability to move ahead of the Magi as they traveled to Bethlehem, and it had the ability to stand right over the house where the Christ child was. And verse 10 tells us the reaction of the Magi when the star reappeared. The text says, when they, the Magi, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You might say, wow, they must have really loved stars if this star made them this happy but you would be missing the whole reason for their joy. They aren't happy to see this star because they love stars. They are rejoicing over this particular star because of the fact that it points them to Christ. And the same is true for all of us. If you value Jesus Christ, you will rejoice in anything that points you to him. In fact, that's why Christians love creation, because creation points us to Christ. That's why Christians love the Old Testament, because the Old Testament points us to Christ. That's why we love the New Testament, because the New Testament points us to Christ. That's why we love our fellow Believers, our brothers and sisters, because they point us to Christ. That's why we love the Holy Spirit, because he testifies of Christ and points us to him. As for the Magi, you will notice that they don't idolize and worship the star and began to make the star the main thing. No, they rejoice in the star because it was sent by God to lead them to the one that they desire to worship. Which leads us to the final development in this story of the Magi seeking and finding the Christ child. Number seven, they worship him once they find him. They worship him once they find him. 
Observe what the Magi do once they see Christ in verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Now, depending on how long after Christ's birth, the Magi are arriving, uh, we could say that Jesus was at least four months old to probably a year and a half old at this time. We would say at least four months because that's the least amount of time it would have taken the Magi to pack up and prepare for travel and then to journey the 900 miles uh, to the land of Israel. Um, And we would say that at the oldest, Christ is probably a year and a half at this point, given that Herod is later going to kill all the babies in Bethlehem who are two years of age and younger, and he's going to make that determination based on the time that he discerned from the Magi that the star appeared. So we don't know how old Jesus was. He was either four months old, anywhere from four months old to probably a year and a half. But however old he was, the Magi come into the house, and the text tells us they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Then notice what the text says next in verse 11. And they fell to the ground and worshiped Mary. Is that what the text says? Does the text say, and they fell to the ground and worshiped Mary and the child? No. It says, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. And in worshiping Jesus, they were honoring Mary because Mary also worshiped Christ. If you really cherish Mary and wish to honor her, then join the Magi and her in the worship of Christ and worship him alone. Notice the physical posture that these Magi assume in their worship here, where the text says they fell to the ground and worshiped him. So they're not just bowing their heads. They're not just taking a knee. They fall to the ground. And writers say that this is the kind of undignified bowing where you collapse to the ground and press your face and your body against the ground, getting as low as you can possibly get before the one that you are worshiping. With this posture, the Magi are completely humbling themselves before Jesus, and they're saying to him, essentially, we are at your mercy. Do to us as you please. We are also at your service, and your wish is our command. And we completely trust you enough to lay our whole selves down in front of you. This is the posture of humility and trust and of full surrender and honor to Christ, which is the essence of true worship. Worship in the truest sense of the term 
is the trusting surrender of oneself to Christ. And it's the only proper response to one so great as he. Observe what the Magi do next. It says, then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You say, what is frankincense? Well, literally, think of it this way. It's a very frank incense. It's an incense that emits a very frank and bold aroma. Frankincense was dried sap from a particular kind of tree which produced a strong aroma when it was burned. It was valuable and had many good uses. And it's one of the gifts that the Magi are giving to Jesus here in addition to the gold that they gave. This act of giving gifts of gold and frankincense to Christ is another indication that the Magi, I think, must have been guided by the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 60, especially Isaiah 60 verse 6, where it is foretold that in the days of the Messianic coming kingdom, people will come to Jerusalem bearing, and I quote, gold and frankincense. And will bear good news to the praises of the Lord, unquote. So evidently, the Magi view themselves as the first installment of a future great throng of people who will pour into the promised land to worship and sing the praises of the Messiah. And they view their gold and their frankincense as early harbingers of more gifts that are going to be brought from the nations later. These magi understand that it will be a while before the full promise of Isaiah 60 is fulfilled, but they want to be the first of many from among the nations who will bring their gifts to this great and wonderful Messiah. As I just read from Isaiah 60, verse 6, gold and frankincense were prophesied in Isaiah 60. But why would the Magi bring Jesus myrrh? Well, myrrh was used in perfumes and it was valuable, but it also had medicinal value. In ancient times, Egyptian soldiers were known to take myrrh into battle with them so that they could use it to stop their wounds from bleeding. Myrrh was also used as a painkiller, and you will recall that they actually tried to give Jesus when he was on the cross, what? Wine mixed with myrrh. We see that in Mark fifteen twenty three. Myrrh was also used as a spice to prepare a body for burial. And John's gospel tells us that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to use in preparing Jesus' body for burial. So this gift of myrrh probably embodied some recognition on the part of the Magi that this Christ child is going to suffer in some significant way. 
And indeed, we all know that he did suffer, dying on the cross to shed his blood in death upon the cross so that those who believe in him from any nation might have the forgiveness of their sins. All in all, uh, here's a Bible trivia question for you. Based on what we're seeing in the passage today, the Magi give four gifts to Jesus. Do you know what the four gifts are? They give him gold, frankincense, myrrh, and they give themselves to Jesus. In fact, they fall to the ground in full surrender of themselves first and then give these gifts to Jesus. Imagine the precious scene of Jesus, just a few months old, perhaps old enough to have learned how to crawl or to walk with these powerful kingmakers from the east bowing so low before him and giving these gifts to him because they know they're in the presence of the very Lord himself, the king of the Jews who will rule over all of the nations one day. There's no way that we can know this for sure, uh, but these magi may very well have been descendants of Abraham's wife, Keturah, whose ancestors Abraham sent off to the east back in Genesis 25, verse 6. And it's their descendants prophesied in Isaiah 60 as among those that are coming into Jerusalem to present gifts of gold and frankincense. Either way, this is the story of the Magi's 900-mile journey in search of this one who had been born, the king of the Jews, in partial fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 60, they make this journey. Their act of worship is a harbinger of a coming day when people of every tribe and tongue and nation will come from around the world and bow before Jesus Christ and give him the worship that he is due. And their worship of Christ is our cue that we too should bow before him and worship him. Ultimately, the Magi would not want us to be impressed with their 900-mile journey to find Christ, nor even with their diligence in seeking after Christ. They would want us to read this story and be impressed with Christ, who is so wonderful and so glorious that he would inspire men to make this kind of journey. These men had everything that many people nowadays would want. They had power and they had prestige. They walked the halls of power and were close to kings and rulers and had the ear of kings. They had wisdom and they had wealth and yet... Their life was not complete. They travel 900 miles to find Jesus. 
and to worship him because evidently Jesus meant more to them than any of the other things that they had attained in their life. And they found him because God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And God, in his grace, will see to it that all who truly are seeking after Christ, they will find him. It is easy to be impressed with the journey of the Magi to find Jesus, but I think we should actually be way more impressed with the journey that Jesus took from heaven to earth, from the heights of heaven to the lowliness of a manger, and eventually to the lowliness of the cross in order that he might be found by the Magi and by you and me. What we should realize is that Christ traveled a far greater distance to reach the Magi than they are having to travel in order to reach him. And because of what Christ has done, you can reach him even now in this very moment while sitting in the seat where you are sitting. The question is, will you worship Christ as your king? Do you see what the Magi saw in Jesus? You see, the Magi saw Jesus as an infant or as a toddler, however old he was, but they also knew that they were beholding a most powerful king. We read on in our Bibles from Matthew 2 onward, and we see Jesus as one in the Gospel of Matthew who grew up and went about doing good at every turn, teaching truth about God and about mankind and healing the sick, demonstrating incredible power and using that power for the good of others, living an absolutely perfect life, never sinning, and then dying on the cross for the sins of mankind and then being raised from the dead and then ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. The Gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus telling us all that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, which means that one day he will be the judge of every person. The Bible also teaches us that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Will you believe the truth about Jesus this morning and bow before him as your most holy Lord? Will you surrender to his loving rule over your life? If you have never done that yet, I hope you will do that today. I promise you that Jesus can be a far better ruler over you than you could ever hope to be over yourself. If you believe in Jesus in this way, he will be delighted to forgive you of your sins and to deliver you from the judgment of God, to deliver you from the wrath of God in hell for all of eternity that we deserve for our sins and giving you atonement and forgiveness for your sins through his shed blood at the cross, Jesus Christ will also make you a child of God and bring you into relationship with 
his heavenly father, and he will give you more gifts than you will ever be able to even think of giving to him. Try as you might, you will never, ever be able to outgive Jesus. If you have never surrendered to his loving rule over your life and found comfort for yourself and the forgiveness of sins that you can find through him, I plead with you today to call upon the name of Jesus and believe in him and be saved. Because here's what I found from experience and what is taught in the word of God. When you believe in Jesus and you are bowed before him in love, you don't just find him. You find home. And you find yourself as you were always meant to be. Let's pray together. Lord, we are a room full of searchers, insatiable searchers. But the search that we learn about in our passage today reminds us that at the bottom of all the things that we search for today, is a hunger and a thirst that can only be satisfied by you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would touch any hearts that need touching, Lord, and draw them to you, Lord Jesus. And that they would find the hunger and the thirst of their hearts satisfied in you. Help those of us who already know you, Lord, during this Christmas season and every day of the year. Just appreciate the magnitude and the gravitas of these things that that are so dense and so powerful, that are so weighty. That it's it's tragic that we would ever take our eyes off of these things and get caught up in the, the fluff of this world that has nothing near the substance that Christ provides that can truly satisfy our souls. Though you have found us in every way that a person could be found, And though, because of your grace, we as believers have found you, help us to ever seek to know you more and experience the depths of your love to a greater and greater degree, knowing that you always reward those who diligently seek after you. So make us seekers in the best sense of the term, all the while thankful for your grace in seeking us and saving us. And it is to you that we give all the glory for this grace. Help us and empower us as we seek to celebrate you in a way that is befitting to your glory this Christmas season. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,